Good afternoon, everybody. Great to see you all. Um, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles, and if you don't have a Bible with you, we have Bibles in the seat rack in front of you. You can grab one of those. It's one of the last books in the Bible. I don't have the page written down. <laughs> 1225, maybe? Uh, something like that. But uh, you, can, you can look it up. Um, we're, we're in a series. Our summer series is on Second Peter. And uh, fortunately, I had last week off, which was a tough, tough passage if you were here. Really tough passage to preach on. Uh, the series is called Dying Words. And uh, imagine we have here the last written words of Peter, the disciple Peter. I mean, just think about that. Uh, a, a guy who walked with Jesus, but not only really walked with Jesus, was a spectacular failure <laughs> a lot of times, uh, as well as um, somebody who God used in incredibly powerful ways. And so uh, we get to spend the summer diving into his words. We're going to look at the very end of chapter one today. I preached on it already earlier in the summer, but long story, I'm not going to give the story. I, I said back then I might cover these verses uh, at the end of this month, and this, it's come. Uh, there was a reason why we were doing it, but anyways, it didn't come to fruition, but uh, we had saved these verses until now. And so we're, we're looking at the last verses, I think verses 19 through 21 of chapter, chapter 1. And we're not going to look so much into the detail of the context of it. Uh, we're going to just kind of look at what Peter is saying uh, right, right there. And so uh, the focus of today's text, as well as of the sermon, is on the authority and reliability of Scripture. Can we, can we count on this book uh, as being the Word of God? And if it's the Word of God, you know, how reliable is it? Those are some of the things that we're going to be looking at today. So I recently read an article. Uh, it was titled, When My Life Fell Apart, I Needed a Bible That Wouldn't. When My Life Fell Apart, I Needed a Bible That Wouldn't. And the, the, rice, the writer, uh, Vanitha Risner, she introduces herself in this way on her, on her own website where she has a blog. She said, I was bullied as a child, suffered multiple miscarriages, uh, have buried a son, deal with a debilitating disease, was left by my first husband and struggled with single parenting. So I understand loneliness, fear, and discouragement, and tragedy that feels pointless. Uh, she writes a lot about suffering and the intersection of suffering and faith and how faith can come alive during times of suffering. And we're going to come back to her story at the very end. Uh, but the big idea that she carries forward in this article is that the Bible is reliable, that it's going to hold up, even up against some of the most difficult times in our lives. So to borrow from the title of that article, uh, if you have the, the outline in front of you, the sermon application guide, I'm calling this, when your life falls apart, you need a Bible that won't. So I want you to, I want you to think about this. The Bible is a, I could have the so, oh, maybe I don't have that on. The Bible is a treasure trove of encouragement and guidance in the worst of times if you value it and you trust it in the best of times. Okay, we do have it up there. Uh, that's not an absolute statement. There are exceptions. I think uh, Vanitha's Rissner's story is an example of someone that in the midst of difficulty 
She turned to the Bible in a way that she hadn't maybe before that point. But as a general rule, if you don't trust the Bible, you're not likely to turn to it when times get tough, really, really hard. And if you don't uh, value the Bible, you're not likely to think of the Bible at a time when you're having a lot of difficulty in your life. So we're going to talk today about why you can trust the Bible, and if you trust it, you'll value it in all times, good times and in hard times. So we're going to pray, prayer of illumination. This one's based on Ezekiel 36, and uh, so please, please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for choosing us and for the newness of a life with you. You can redeem, restore, and rebuild us. Teach us and transform us through your word. Lead us and guide us by your Holy Spirit. Remind us of the purpose we have been given as your children to know you and to make you known. Father, I lift up to you uh, just the continuing war in Ukraine, uh, the people of Ukraine, um, the soldiers, uh, many who don't want to be fighting from the other side, from the Russians. And Father, we just pray for the leaders. We pray for the people. We pray for this war to come to an end, for the refugees around the world, for those that are returning to Ukraine and, and trying to go back to their homes. Such a mess, Father, and the hunger that this could put around the world as, um, as farming is interrupted. Father, uh, as winter, when winter comes, I pray that you will work through leaders of the world to make sure that uh, any deficiencies are being met in other ways. Father, we also pray for the people in Kentucky, in that area of Kentucky where there's flooding and the loss of life. We pray for the families who lost loved ones. Encourage them, Father. Give them strength. And I pray for the communities around them to come together and help those people. We thank you, Father. We thank you that you are a God who cares about us, that you communicate with us, that you love us, that you are at work. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let's uh, follow along in the chapter 1, beginning in verse 19, as um, one of our missions partners, uh, ministry partners, uh, reads the text to us. 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable, and you will do well to pay attention to it, as to a light shining in a dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will, but prophets, though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right. All right, as we think of the authority and reliability of Scripture, I want you to think about this question. How much would it cost to have Jesus endorse a product? How much would it cost to have Jesus endorse a product? Now imagine if you were selling a product and, and you got an endorsement from Jesus. Uh, everybody who loves Jesus would go out and buy it. It'd become an Amazon bestseller like overnight. It would have that little, that little thing, bestseller. Uh, it would just need one review, right? <laughs> Jesus' review. And that would be enough to get it. And I remember reading some years ago uh, about... Uh, uh, how surprisingly inexpensive it can be to have a celebrity 
endorse your product, depending, of course, on the celebrity. And uh, granted, if you're just getting started and you don't have millions uh, to work with or you are just trying to get a product off the ground, start a small business or something like that, you're not going to get George Clooney uh, to come in and uh, try out your product on television. Um, you're not going to get Beyonce to uh, endorse your product. But I went looking online to see what does it cost to get some celebrities to endorse your product. And uh, I found that, uh, this might have been a little while ago, but Kim Kardashian, if you can get her to do this, would mention your product on like Twitter or Instagram for only $13,000. It's kind of affordable, I guess. <laughs> but if you can't afford the $13,000, uh, you can get one of the former members of NSYNC um, for $600 <laughs> to mention you on Twitter. So, um, in this passage, we have Peter's endorsement of Scripture, Peter's endorsement of the Bible. So, when he talks about the prophetic message in verse 19, uh, he's talking really about something bigger than just prophets. He's talking about the Scripture as a whole. And here are some of the things, some of the ways he endorses it, some of the things he says about it. So, oh yeah, I just thought that's, that'd be funny. Let's go back there. Since That's Peter, by the way. Tune in tonight to find out how my favorite Bible ver is. All right. So anyways, um, but he's talking about Scripture, not a version of Scripture. So uh, here are some of the things he says. He says that Scripture is completely reliable. You can read the passage and see that. He says that we would do well to pay attention to the message of Scripture, since you would do well to pay attention to Scripture. So, a couple of weeks ago, I came across this prayer. Um, it's a prayer to pray when reading and reflecting on Scripture. Holy Spirit, my teacher, this is kind of like a prayer of illumination. Holy Spirit, my teacher, as I dive into the Bible, would you awaken my heart, expand my mind, and shape my identity today? That, that is like a perfect prayer of paying attention, to want to pay attention, to ask God to help you pay attention. You would do well to pay attention to Scripture. He says that Scripture is a light shining in a dark place. Now, that's, that's a hyperlink to all kinds of passages in Scripture. Probably one of the best known passages in Scripture is Psalm 19, verse 105, where it says, your word is a lamp um, for my feet a light on my path. And there's so many other places where it speaks of Christ and it speaks of God and it speaks of His Word as being a light in a very dark, dark place, the world that we live in. And Peter says that the prophets spoke from God. Now, that's quite, a, quite an endorsement. Scripture is completely reliable. Pay attention to its message. Scripture is like a light shining in a dark place. And the prophets spoke from God. The Apostle Paul gives a similar uh, endorsement of Scripture in 2 Timothy chapter 3. It's in the questions that are at the end of the sermon application guide, but here are some of the things he says. You can look at it uh, if you spend some time reflecting on those questions, but he says, the Scripture is able to make you wise for salvation. It is God-breathed. It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, and it equips the servant of God for every good work. That's 
That's one of Paul's endorsements of Scripture. But to me, the most important endorsement is the endorsement that Jesus gives of Scripture. And you didn't have to pay him anything to get the endorsement. Jesus had a lot to say about the authority and reliability of the Scripture. But his greatest endorsement comes in the form of quoting it as God's Word, as a word from God. He'll say, don't you know what God said? And then he gives Scripture. And it's not necessarily God speaking in Scripture. It's a passage where the writer is speaking, the inspired writer of Scripture. Um, he, he speaks in this way, constantly quoting Scripture authoritative from beginning to the end of his story. Now, the same can be said for the Apostle Paul, for Peter, for other, the other apostles and writers of Scripture. They're constantly quoting the Scripture. That is their greatest endorsement of Scripture. They're saying, this is the truth. This is why I say this. It's because the Scripture says this. Now, admittedly, this isn't like a great proof or great evidence of the reliability of Scripture for a skeptic, all right? Because it is a circular argument, right? I mean, we're seeing Scripture that we consider to be authoritative saying that it is authoritative, you know? So, it's, it's a circular argument. It's not like some evidence from the outside, but it speaks to an idea that is common today, unfortunately. And, and the idea is, and you hear this Unfortunately, way too often, you can, you can hear it from, from people who write books and do podcasts and stuff like that, but you also hear it just in regular conversation. I like Jesus, basically, is how it goes. I like Jesus, and I like what He says, but I don't trust the Bible, or at least not the Old Testament. I don't like it. Now, the reality is that we would know next to nothing about Jesus without the Scripture. So, if you're, you're saying, I really like Jesus, and I follow Jesus, but then you look to the Scripture so that you can know about Jesus, and He says the Scripture is important. It just doesn't make sense that you wouldn't adopt the same perspective as Jesus had. Now, we know from history that Jesus existed. We know that He created a stir. We know that He was executed. But to really know what He taught, you have to turn to what the gospel writers wrote. So, if I could have the next slide. Jesus clearly endorsed the Bible, so if you value Jesus, if you say you follow the Jesus that we know in the Bible, it simply doesn't make sense if you don't value the Bible that Jesus valued, and if you don't follow the Bible that Jesus followed, all right? So, we have these strong endorsements of Scripture as being completely reliable. I've said this many times before, I'll say it again. Jesus uses Scripture in such a way in His teaching that He basically says, look, I fit what God says in the Scripture. And by saying that, He is implying that if I didn't, you wouldn't need to believe me. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's how much He values uh, the Scripture. So, we have Peter's endorsement. It focuses really on the fact that God speaks to us. Um, and he's following in the footsteps of Jesus in saying this. He's following in the footsteps of the other apostles in saying this. Peter is saying, you can't just say that when the prophets of the Old Testament spoke, they were, yeah, they were just giving their own ideas, their own opinions. They were being driven by their own agendas. No, God spoke through the prophets. 
They spoke from God's agenda. That's what Peter is driving home at this, the end of chapter 1 of 2 Peter. But here's where it gets a little tricky for us, because Peter acknowledges that humans are involved in the process. At the very least, I mean, Peter is a human being writing this letter. It's not like he found a tablet somewhere and then shared it with them. You know, oh, I found a tablet. God wrote on it. Or I found a a scroll written by the hand of God. No, Peter is the one writing these words. And same thing in the Old Testament. It's, It's people who are involved in the process. So the false teachers that we looked at uh, last week, the week before as well, we're going to be looking at again uh, next week, um, the false teachers that Peter is combating are presumably dismissing Scripture. They're not valuing Scripture. They're devaluing it in some way. Uh, they're emphasizing the human aspect over the divine aspect of Scripture. And um, I, I, could spend, I could spend a lot of time right now just talking about uh, podcasts, authors, entire denominations uh, that do what I've just described. They emphasize the divine nature or the human nature of Scripture, and they de-emphasize the divine aspects of Scripture. So there's a lot of people who are are self-identified Christians following Jesus who downplay the divinity, the divine aspect of Scripture that, that God actually inspired the Scripture in a way that, that, kept it, that kept it authoritative, that everything that's said there is authoritative. And, um, uh, but to be, and to be fair, to be fair, many of those same people still love the Scripture and value the Scripture. But they just don't believe that God makes certain that everything in the Scripture is true and reliable, and therefore, they don't feel that they have to be under its full authority, that whatever the Scripture teaches and intends to teach, that that is what we believe and that what we follow. Now, on our side of the fence, those of us who believe that the Bible is inspired by God and without error, we have a tendency to underplay the human aspect of Scripture. But the reality is that the Bible is both human and divine. The Bible is both human and divine. And let me give you a somewhat technical statement of how this works. This is from a biblical scholar named Douglas Moo, right out of his commentary, commenting on this passage of Scripture, where he goes off for a while talking about the authority of Scripture and the... um, the reliability of Scripture. So this is, this is what he writes. This human-divine interplay is called concurrence. Now, concurrence is a theological term that can apply to human-divine interplay in a lot of areas, Scripture being one of those, okay? So if you read a theology book, you can read about concurrence. It's going to talk about this, how God's will and using humanity, how things get done that He wants done. But this is specifically applied to Scripture. So in this process, we believe God prepared... Specific human beings through birth, environment, all aspects of their lives, to communicate His Word. These human beings genuinely spoke in their own words, but the words they used were also just those words that God wanted them to use. Okay, so people who think about this human and divine interplay, 
This is, this is the kind of thing that you would read in, their, in theology books of people who, like us, who believe in the authority of Scripture. Now, let me give you a couple of analogies of how this might work, but um, both of these analogies fall short, as most analogies do, all right? So, uh, it'll get us partway there to understanding a little. The first analogy is just Christ himself. So, uh, bad things happen in our theology and in the way that we live when we either emphasize the human aspects of Jesus over the divine aspects of Jesus, or we overemphasize the divine aspects without taking into account the reality of the human aspects of Jesus. So, throughout the years in the early centuries of the church, there were whole councils that came together uh, of church leaders, and they worked on this. These were great minds working on how can Jesus be both human and divine? And they tried to explain it, and they spent a lot of time talking about what it doesn't mean and where things can go really wrong. But they basically came up with the phrase, he is truly divine and truly human at the same time. We don't know. It's a, myster- it's a mystery, but he's truly human, divine and truly human. Now, not surprisingly, those of us who have a high view of Scripture can underplay the truly human aspects of Jesus and wind up with a, a, a biblical understanding that is imbalanced, that doesn't really take into account and the beauty and the greatness of the fact that Jesus is uh, human, that God took on human flesh, all right, and, um, and, and not, emphasize, you know, and de-emphasize the, 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 the flesh part of that. So here's another an analogy. Another analogy is that of an architect. So imagine an architect is building a large building, and uh, so they've planned the building. Uh, they are also the general contractor. Now, don't, I'm not a building person, all right, so don't, don't call me out on this if I miss some details. But imagine with me, uh, the architect hires two different plumbers, uh, plumbing contractors, to, to build the plumbing into the building. And one starts at one end and one starts at the other end. Following the architect's plan. Now you can imagine, at least I can, because I don't know anything, that the, ar- that the plumbers would have different approaches to doing things, different tools, different Approaches might take, one might take a little longer than the other. One may give attention to, like, making it look nice. Another one may say it's behind a wall. Who cares? Uh, so it's going to, it's the way that they put the pipes together, I don't know if that's in the plans, but the way that they put the pipes together, you know, might look different. But it needs to work. It needs to work in the way that the architect planned it and say, in the end, it does. It's kind of that way in Scripture. God uses all these different people, uh, different humans who had different ways of writing, different experiences in life that they're writing about sometimes, uh, different experiences, uh, different literary abilities in, in terms of what they wanted to say. But think of God as the master architect. What is said ultimately comes from his heart, from his mind, from his design, and he specifically protects them and keeps them from error. That's the kind of thing 
that we're talking about when we talk about the authority of Scripture, the reliability of Scripture. Now, those analogies do fall short, but the Bible as God's Word brought to us by humans and shaped by humans, some eloquent, some who write very plainly, some who have great grammatical abilities, some who don't have great grammatical abilities, and everything in between. Understanding that is important, both human and divine. So you might ask, why is it important to have the human element? Why do we need to hold on to that? Well, let me give you one, two, three, about three reasons, all right? So the first reason is, if you don't remember the human element, or if you don't take that into account, you're going to misinterpret the Bible. Plainly speaking, you're going to misinterpret it. Um, People who don't take that into consideration uh, often do misinterpret the Bible, because what happens is you take words that are rooted in a culture and history and situations, lift them off of page, and try to make them all blend together. Saying, well, God is like the author of this, Therefore, if he says this word in this place, he must mean this word, the same thing when he says it over here, and not take into account that two authors, two different cultures, those words are going to take on different meaning in the cultures that they write in, all right? So, a lot of times that means we miss what actually the author is actually saying, inspired by God to say, we miss that, or sometimes we read into it. We give it meanings that it doesn't, it doesn't have. So it will lead to misinterpreting the Bible. Secondly, it is a form of human arrogance. To emphasize, it can be, let's put it that way. To emphasize the divine God inspiration and de-emphasize the human is a form of human arrogance. Because God spoke through people in history in languages you and I don't even know, (laughs) languages that aren't spoken anymore. He spoke very specifically in certain cultures, and some of those people wrote literary masterpieces. We're going to be, this fall, we're going to be looking at Genesis. Um, I don't know if we'll get out of Genesis 1 in the entire fall, but we're going to see it is a literary masterpiece. And if you think that if you turn to another book in the Bible, it's going to be just as much of a masterpiece, it's a lot of other Bible books are not the same kind of literary masterpieces. All right, so um, some wrote very plainly. Um, God spoke, but God spoke through both of them. And again, and everything in between. That's what he actually did. (laughs) Does it make sense? It's what he actually did. It's observable. You can like read it and you can say, masterpiece, simple, <laughs> plain. It's, it's right there to be seen. That's what he did. Who are we to treat the Bible like what we think God should have done instead of what he obviously did and what he actually did? You know, when we impose what we think he should do, which it should be all divine, should be dictated by God, should be consistent in style and everything all the way across the board. You know, if we emphasize the divine and take out the human, we're actually saying we know better than God. <laughs> like, he 
he, you know, that'd be too confusing to do it God's way. So I'm going to read it in the way that I think it should be done. You may want a Bible that is ahistorical, that it's not like rooted to history, and is above any human limitations or any human influence, but it's not what you got. It's not what we have in the Bible. Here's a, another problem with taking out the human element. It requires studious, thinking people to stop thinking in order to believe. It asks studious people to stop thinking. Now, granted, throughout history, maybe most people never think about this at all. Maybe most people, if you press them a little bit throughout history, they would say, well, it's, God gave them the word, word by word. This is, you know, they sat down and in a quiet room and kind of God told them what to say or he controlled their hand or something like that. It's called a dictation method. That's not what it means that God spoke, speaks through the word authoritatively. But mo maybe most people would believe that. Aunt Millie, your Aunt Millie, you know, may think that, all right? Your elderly Aunt Millie, all right? Not a big harm in that, okay? I'm not saying that, like, oh my goodness, you know, Aunt Millie's going to take down the Bible or something like that. But when you ask a student of the details of the Bible to accept that idea, and they believe that the Bible is authoritative. They're a student of the Bible, and they believe it's authoritative. They can't pretend that it's something other than what it is. You're asking to deny the reality they see before their very eyes. And that can be very harmful to real people. You can find whole denominations, you can find whole movements that are intellectually challenged because they fail to apply the intellect to their faith. And they've done it for generations. And they've chased away, they've kind of like a brain drain, like some countries have a brain drain. Uh, like you get an authoritative leader and everybody that thinks, you know, has to leave because they're not allowed to think. They have to do what the authoritative leader, that kind of thing. And I could tell you stories of real people that I know that have been harmed in this way. And you probably can tell me stories as well. So business and leadership guru Jim Collins has uh, done a lot of study of companies of all different kinds that have been highly successful over time. And one of his, one of his books was about businesses that last or companies that last. And uh, one of the things that he found in common among those are that they, what he calls, they, um, they get the genius of the and, A-N-D, the genius of the and. And they not only get it, they embrace it. So here's, here's what he writes. Builders of great organizations reject the tyranny of the or and embrace the genius of the and. Now, he's not saying they're there aren't or situations, all right? But they embrace the genius of the and. They embrace both extremes across a number of dimensions at the same time. Purpose and profit, continuity and change, freedom and responsibility, discipline and creativity, humility and will, empirical analysis and decisive action. So there is a sort of a genius of the and in the human and divine natures of Scripture. And there is a sort of tyranny of the or when people pit these two aspects of Scripture over against each other, uh, whether they make it all human or whether they make it all divine. The Bible is both human and divine, and you can believe that it is still without error. Uh, Jesus treated it that way. 
and so can you. A Bible that is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Charles Spurgeon, great, great pastor, British pastor from the 1800s. Now, when he, when he said that, what he was talking about was the binding on the Bible and the cover and the paper. And the whole idea, of course, was that a person who uses their Bible a lot, that Bible is going to get worn out. It's going to be starting to fall apart after a while. And the person who does that is going to be someone who isn't going to fall apart. Now, I told you about Vanitha Risner, uh, who wrote that article about needing the Bible when the rest of life is falling apart, and she needed a Bible that wouldn't fall apart. She's talking about its message not falling apart. She's talking about its authority and its reliability. And when she was going through a really difficult time, a friend of her uh, told her, well, she quoted her what Spurgeon said and uh, encouraged her to not stop reading the Bible. (laughs) Don't stop reading the Bible in this difficult time and to really work at falling in love with the Bible in the midst of her difficulty while she was suffering. Now, she said she really trusted this friend, so she she really took it to heart and tried to follow her advice, but she said at first it was like eating cardboard. She'd read the Bible and it just, it just wasn't sinking in. And uh, she was just hurting, hurting so much. And she admits that she wanted to kind of chuck the Bible and just start reading an inspiring devo- devotional or a book that could help her fix her problem. So if I just read a book that's really practical, help me fix my problem, I can start feeling better really quickly. But she took her friend's advice, and what she discovered uh, was that the Bible brought her real help in the midst of what she was going through. She writes that when her infant son, died, infant son died because of a doctor's mistake, she found real help in Psalms of Lament. When she experienced a debilitating and painful condition that could leave her a quadriplegic, The Bible's words about God being our strength and shield gave her the strength to go on. When her husband left her to parent her two teenage daughters alone, she found the wisdom and comfort and hope she needed from the scriptures. She says she began to systematically and regularly and intentionally read through the whole Bible, not just her favorite passages really reading the whole counsel of God. She read asking God to reveal himself and his will and his wisdom. And uh, she wrote this in this article. She said, I listened, lamented, and prayed my way through the Bible until my quiet time became more life-giving conversation than boring homework exercise. When your life falls apart, you need a Bible that won't. I hope you know that. If you don't know that, I hope you're beginning to understand that and maybe practicing it. And you don't have to wait until your life falls apart. In fact, better if you don't. You don't have to wait until your, your life falls apart to find the depths of, depths of life and wisdom, the perspective that Scripture can bring to our crazy world and our crazy lives. 
We need to let the Bible, God's word, shape our hopes, shape our dreams, shape our ideas, shape our imaginations right now. Listen, lament, and pray your way through the Bible until your quiet time becomes more life-giving conversation than boring homework exercise. Let's uh, begin our response right now together. Um, if you grab the communion packets, invite you to open it up and get the bread ready. It is the scripture after all <laughs> that records the words of Jesus at the Last Supper, how he told his disciples to eat this bread in remembrance of him, that as we eat this bread, we are remembering that his body was broken for us. And it is a scripture that reminds us his blood was shed for us. Father, we thank you that you are a God who communicates, that you want to carry on a conversation with us, that Jesus calls his followers his friends, that you call us into a relationship of friendship, a relationship of love, a relationship of family with you. We are your sons and daughters. We have brothers and sisters because of you, brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us, Father, to value your word and to value what your word says about you, about Jesus, about us, about our lives. And may it shape our perspective more and more. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.